This is, a, this is a really personal sermon for me because I, I honestly cannot remember as I look back, uh, and I've been in ministry 15 years, and I've preached a lot of sermons. I haven't always been a senior pastor or a lead pastor, but I've taught a lot of lessons, taught a lot of Bible studies, preached a lot of sermons, and I can't remember um, being hit with the challenge and the conviction and the thrill, um, too, as I have studying and preparing for this message and reading this text and reading some other books and studying some other passages in the Bible um, this has been just incredibly eye-opening for me as a church planner and as somebody who seeks to make Christ known in my city, in my home, in my neighborhood, in central Florida. Um, this, is, this has been revolutionary for me, and I pray that it is for you too. It's unfortunate we just really have one message, but th- there'll be other messages about this in the future. And I know what typically happens when a pastor gets up and announces his subject for preaching, if it's either evangelism or prayer or studying the Bible, people instantly shrink in their seats because they think, here it is, he's here to drop the hammer on us. Because listen, honestly, can anybody here, don't, if you, <laughs> if you do, don't raise your hand, wait till after the sermon and then you'll see why. Um, I would doubt very seriously if there is anybody here who's a Christian who would raise their hand with confidence and say, you know what, I got this prayer thing figured out, Pastor, and I can help you later with it. And I'm sure some of you probably could. Um, but we're all growing, amen? We're all growing in our understanding of the spiritual disciplines of the need for prayer, the discipline of prayer. Um, And so when I mention prayer, a lot of people feel instant conviction because they think, well, I don't do it enough. I don't do it as I ought to do it. And so therefore, I know the pastor's here to just hammer me and, and, and make me feel terrible and awful and tell me to do better and try harder. Um, but that's not true. Not all of that is true. I'm definitely here because I think we need to be challenged. And I've been challenged as I've studied for this and heard, I believe, from, from the Lord as I've studied His Word and prayed and repented and asked Him for help because I believe the culture of a church never rises above its leaders. And if I'm calling this church to be a people of prayer, yet I'm not willing to demonstrate that or cultivate that habit or that discipline in my own life, I think that's hypocrisy. And so God has really helped me this week to not only study this and understand it better, but I think honestly... Uh, to practice it in my own life and seek to cultivate that habit in my family. And so I'm excited. So we don't have very many points this morning, just three. But the very first uh, point in our sermon outline, I think I have to turn this on. There we go. A little slow this morning. Is this. Just three W's, okay? It's got nothing to do with the Bush family. Just three W's here. First, uh, prayer is war. Point number one, from this passage, specifically verse 18, prayer is war. Second point, prayer is weighty. And that's just a word that means powerful. I, I couldn't think of a, a word that's a synonym for power that starts with a W, sorry. Uh, and the third point is prayer is work. And to be honest with you, I, you know, I'm going to be weaving in and out of that. It could have just been one point. Prayer is war, because it is. And that would have covered all the rest. Because war is work. War is weighty. It's profound. There's tremendous things that are taking place. But point number one is the major point that I want to unpack for you. Prayer is war. And you can hear that behind the, the, the emotion that you can hear in the Apostle Paul when he says this. Check this out. Pray at all times, in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. That is clearly combat talk. This, this could very easily be uh, you overhearing a conversation b- b- between a captain or a general and his soldiers. Either the night before this epic battle is taking place, Uh, or in the middle of the battle to encourage them. This is all about warfare. And listen, Jesus has called each of us to be on mission with him. Jesus gave us a mission, and he also gave us this critical key 
to the success of this mission, and it's prayer. We have prayer because Jesus gave us a mission. And listen to me. If you are serious about following Jesus on this mission, you will most certainly encounter severe conflict from Satan and from the demons of hell. And I know there's maybe always one, two, or three people that they're not going to sit out there and shake their head, but they think, man, really? Are we... This is, this is 2018. Are we still talking about this personal devil? Yeah, we are, because the Bible talks about him. Jesus believed in Satan. Jesus encountered Satan in one-on-one personal confrontation. Jesus talked about Satan. He said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So I believe in Satan because Jesus believes in Satan, and I've felt and seen his influence, the corruption in the world that oftentimes he's behind. He's very sinister. He's very menacing. He's very subtle. He's enticing, seductive. The Bible says we are no match from him apart from the resources that we have because of Jesus. And prayer is most certainly one of those resources. It's the most weighty. In fact, I believe Paul intentionally and strategically and purposefully waited until all the other pieces of armor had been laid out and explained to talk about prayer. And I don't believe that prayer is a piece of our armor he, in no way does Paul try to liken prayer to something you carry, some piece of equipment or anything like that. I think prayer uh, is the power that you put all these pieces of armor on with and use them effectively with. Does that make sense? If you had to say that prayer is a, you know, something you carry on you, it would be a bugle in the old days, okay, before they had walkie-talkies. It would be like this bullhorn uh, that the soldier that... that that took up and guarded the rear would have with him to call for reinforcements, to call for backup, to call for a medic. This is warfare that we're talking about, this invisible battle. And it's interesting to me that prayer is an invisible resource that we have too, right? I can be praying and nobody know what I'm doing. I love that, don't you? I can be facing a, a, a very intense spiritual crisis, and I don't have to pray out loud. There's no Bible verse that says we have to. There's plenty of examples of men who did, and there's times when that's appropriate. But prayer is something that's taking place between you and the creator of the universe that can only be made possible because of Christ. So it's our secret weapon, you could say, but it's not a piece of armor. It's what all the other pieces of armor are linked to to empower them. Prayer is war. Um... The whole book of Ephesians is interesting because at the very beginning, I mean, chapter 1, verse 3 says, We have been, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I mean, it's all about blessing, blessing, blessing. Ephesians takes us to the heights. And then the very last chapter, right before Paul closes this really powerful letter, not only has he taken us to the heights, but he's putting us on our knees now because we know Paul has told us what God's invincible, eternal purposes are for us because of Christ. And he knows that as we go out into the world and seek to live on that mission, we are going to encounter opposition. Satan is going to oppose us. He's going to hinder us. He hates God's people. He hates this mission. He wants to resist us, attack us. He wants to supplant Christ. He wants to take away and remove our power. And we talked a little bit last week about what makes Satan afraid? I think there's two things that make him afraid. The armor that you have on is not, doesn't look that menacing, honestly. If you go out and you're facing this vicious, menacing opponent and all you see is their armor, you're not going to be afraid, dude, and leave, you know? If you see them have this really sharp, threatening broadsword, that may intimidate you a little. But if we're talking about Satan, I think 
the thing that intimidates him and puts fear into him more than anything else is a Christian on his or her knees. And look, that's kind of a metaphor. You don't have to be on your knees either, okay? I don't want to get legalistic with the posture of prayer, even though there's times when it's, I think, probably important for you to visibly remind yourself you are under the authority of God and and being low on your face and on your knees before Him is a good thing. It's a good reminder, right? But I think Satan trembles when he even sees the weakest Christian on his knees. I think Satan's done, and that's resisting him. That's what James 4, 7 says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What makes Satan flee? Some kind of hocus-pocus formula you shout out? No. It's him seeing you on your face calling for reinforcement from the general, right? That makes him afraid because, listen, Satan knows that in and of ourselves, we're not invincible. We're not. But we know the one who is. <laughs> and, and we have access to him, the Bible says. At any given time, we can just stomp into God's throne room and have his ear, have his face, have his full attention, and have all the divine resources spiritually that he has made available to us because of Jesus. That's why prayer is war. It's combat. That's what it is. God has given us prayer because Jesus has given us a message. And so from the get-go, I want everyone here to understand just how critical and important prayer is, not only in your own personal life, but also in the life of our church and, and living on Christ's mission that he gave us successfully. There is a really powerful story in the Old Testament, and it is in Exodus 17. And it's interesting to me. It's the second book of the Bible, the very beginning of the pilgrimage of the Israelites. They have left Egypt God, through the, the man Moses, uh, you know, he ransacked Egypt. He decimated all the gods, false gods and goddesses of Egypt, and he let the place just destroyed. And so they're traveling now. Moses is leading about a million uh, women, children, and, and, and men across this wilderness. And guess what? They get hamstrung. They get attacked by the Amalekites. And so they have to go out. There's this, this brutal war, and they have to go out and fight with the Amalekites. Now, I want to ask you a question. Those of you that know a little bit of the Bible, when I say Joshua, you probably think commander of the Lord's armies, right? This dude was bad to the bone. He is fearless. There is none that are his equal. Joshua doesn't lose in hand-to-hand combat. He doesn't. And he is the most fierce soldier in, in the Israelite army. And so Moses sends Joshua down into the valley to fight against the Amalekites. But check this out. Moses tells Joshua, look, I'm going to be up on top of the mountain with the staff of God in my hand until the battle's over. So Joshua is down in the valley facing the Amalekites. It's hand-to-hand combat. It's brutal. It's bloody. It's loud. Uh, you know, there's, there's blood and gore everywhere. There's this violent confrontation between two opposing forces. But up on the mountain, Moses has the rod of God in his hand, and the Bible says that Aaron and his brother Ur go up there with Moses. Now, check this out. Can you see this? Can you read this? Probably not. Um, This is what it says, and I didn't write this part in my notes, so I'm going to have to turn to it here. That's okay. Exodus chapter 17, and if you want to turn there, you can, because this is pretty phenomenal. Because remember, we're talking about how critical is prayer? How important is prayer? Does, Does it even matter? Does the outcome for what we do in our life the, uh, the spiritual conflict we have, does, does prayer play a role in that? And if it does, how critical is that role? Well, I think this is a great picture example from the Old Testament. From the very beginning, God wanted us to have this uh, powerful memory etched into our mind. So check this out. Exodus chapter 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. 
So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Ur went up on the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Now this is pretty phenomenal. I don't think Moses fully told Joshua what was going to go down when he went up there, you know? Because Joshua would have been praying for Moses. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand... Amalek prevailed. Is this just kind of weird to you when you read this stuff? It's like, what? What in the world? What's this all about? But Moses' hands grew weary because, listen, prayer is work. And the only people who don't believe that are the people that have never really engaged in intercessory prayer on behalf of themselves or somebody else. It's work. It's tiring. It's wearying. It's exhausting. That's why the Bible uses words like prevail, wrestle with God, overcoming in prayer. It's war. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they, that is Aaron and Ur, thank God they were with him. They took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Ur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now I want to ask you a question. Whose role in that battle was more important? Moses's or Joshua? Don't answer, because it's a trick question. They're both important. They're both critical. You don't have Joshua, and you ain't got nobody to fight the enemy. But if you don't have a Moses on top of the mountain with his hand held up, signifying, God, we need your power, your presence, or we are undone and we're defeated. You don't have a a Moses, you don't have any power. You've got a weak, defeated Joshua. And I've done this with my kids at least once or twice, you know, every two or three years. I have them come, we did it at our home group, I think, one night uh, last month. And I had all the kids hold their hands up. I said, just hold your hands up. Which of you are strong? They're like, I'm strong, Daddy, I can do it. I'm like, okay, hold your hands up in the air. I think I made them do this thing, right? I said, how long do you think you can do that? For hours, Daddy, for hours. Now you go home and you try this, guys, and you see how long you can do it. And you'll see why Moses had... Uh, Aaron and Ur on either side of him because he grew weary. He needed to sit down. He needed somebody to hold his hands up. And it says, um, until the going down of the sun. This was an all-day thing. And if, if, if you had been a bystander looking down at the valley, there would have been times when Joshua would have probably looked like he was on the retreat. He was being defeated. He wasn't prevailing. And you would scratch your head and think, man, what in the world? What's going on? Listen, guys, there are forces that are taking place that are invisible that we often forget about that can only be engaged in prayer that affect the outcome of our lives and our witness and our, and, and our evangelism and our parenting and our marital conflicts. There's something going on that's very deep, profound, mysterious, and often invisible. And the Bible wants us to know from the get-go that prayer is the, is the winning edge. I had a football coach that used to call. We would do sprints every day after practice when we were all so dog-tired. He would say, it's time for the winning edge. We didn't want to hear that, you know. This is what's going to give us the winning edge when we actually play the game. You guys are going to be so conditioned, you're not going to be tired like your opponent is. Prayer is the winning edge. You know, I, I like all these Avenger movies. i got to confess, I'm just kind of a... I don't know. I'm a kid when it comes to that kind of thing. And I love it whenever the Avengers are facing this menacing opponent. And you remember what they all say? What their secret is? We have a Hulk, 
right? They're like, we got the Incredible Hulk. These people have no idea what's about to get thrown in there. It doesn't look like much. He's just a doctor. He's just a geek, you know, with glasses on right now. But when he gets angry, we got this secret weapon. And I think, and I believe, and I'm convinced that Paul is telling us, listen, this is your secret weapon, man. This is, Hulk ain't got nothing on this. Because we have access to the creator of the universe who's sitting sovereignly on his throne, uninfluenced, um, unimpeded, he has ultimate authority. You know, sovereignty means um, that you have ultimate authority and that nothing can threaten that, nothing can change that. And we have his ear. The Bible says that God delights in the prayers of his people. There is no time that you will ever engage God in prayer um, that if you're coming in the Spirit, you're burdening him, you're bothering him, you're annoying him, he's irritated by you. No, the thing that wearies God is hypocrisy. That's what wearies and exhausts God, the Bible says. So, yeah, we have a hog, but he's, he's more than a hog. He's a sovereign creator of the universe, and he sent his son to die for us. So, anyway, I think that's a really powerful illustration to help us remember the power of prayer and how critical it is. And it's oftentimes, I believe, the, uh, the defining factor for whether we're living victorious, successful, fruitful, obedient, humble Christian lives, and whether we're just defeated. I talked about this last time. Two things, prayer and the word. Prayer and the Word, and those are spiritual disciplines, and they're privileges. We have neither of those things without God's grace to us offered through Christ. So, you know, I've often thought of that battle and thought, had the Amalekites known what was going on up there, man, they would have dispatched a, a skilled archer, right? Hey, you see that old man up there holding that stick? You t take that guy out, man. Take that guy out, and the battle's ours, right? Um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he's the prince of preachers, one of my favorite preachers, and he preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit in London in the 1800s. And he would often have people that would come with him to the, to the service on Sunday. And they would say, Spurgeon, how is it that you do what you do, man? You're so eloquent. You're so passionate, powerful. You're an extremely gifted communicator. Seems like every time you open your mouth to preach the gospel, people confess their sins and repent and, and come into the kingdom and become Christians. And Spurgeon said, do you want to see my secret? He would say, come with me, and he would take them to the basement of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, this massive building, massive edifice where he preached. He would take them down in the basement, and he would say, there's a furnished room down here. This is where I get all my power, and they would say, what are you talking about? And he would open a door, and there would be hundreds of members of the Metropolitan Tabernacle on their knees in corporate prayer every single Sunday uniting. And Spurgeon would say, I've told these people, if they ever stop praying for me, please inform me, and I will promptly stop preaching. Because he knew that the power for preaching came from the prayers of his people. And hey, I would say the same thing. I feel your prayers when I'm preparing, when I'm studying, and when I'm preaching. Because this is war. All of life is war, really, the Bible says. The Battle of Chester in 613 A.D., um, the pagan king of Northumbria, his name was, I can really, not even really pronounce it, Ethelfrith. Sounds kind of funny. King Ethelfrith, he was, he was an Anglo-Saxon, and he thought that he was going to go and inv invade Wales. Uh, and the, the Welsh were Christians, and they not only brought soldiers to the battlefield, but they also brought all their priests and all their monks. And their priests and their monks were on the sidelines watching the battle, and they didn't have any armor on, and they didn't have any swords. And so when this pagan Anglo-Saxon king saw all of those monks and priests, he asked one of his leaders, he said, and who in the world is that? And they said, those are the monks of Bangrock. 
and they are here to pray. And see, that king understood what we so often don't, because you know what his next order was? You guys remember this? True story. He said, kill them first. And they did. And there were 1,200 priests and monks that were slaughtered. And the king won that battle that day. Really interesting piece of history. See, he understands as a pagan king, I think what many Christians forget, that prayer is war. It's part of the warfare. It's the secret, it's the secret weapon that we have that so often we, we don't utilize. Sadly, we don't. And again, I'm not here to uh, drop the hammer. I'm here to challenge you um, with, with God's word. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He brings gentle conviction when our lives are not in accordance with what the Bible says. And I believe that this church moving forward and successfully accomplishing the mission that God has given to us to reach this community, it's not going to happen without prayer. We'll get exhausted. We'll get wearied. We'll get irritated. We'll get annoyed. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll do mission drift. We'll neglect the gospel. We'll neglect prayer. We'll neglect one another. We have to move forward on, on, the, uh, on the power of prayer. And, you know, you see this all in the Bible, that, that prayer is war. You, you look at Jesus in the garden. Um, he's tired as a human being. He's tired. Um, he is, there's a certain level of, of concern, obviously, and fear, not sinful fear, not slavish fear, but he's in agony. The Bible says Jesus was in agony in that garden. He was in such agony that the Bible says he was sweating great drops of blood, which is actually a... a uh, documented medical condition where your capillaries, under, when you're under such stress, your capillaries actually can explode and you can emit blood out of different pores in your body, like sweat glands. Isn't that amazing? Jesus was sweating blood. He was under such pressure. And the Bible says he, he prayed three different times, Lord, if there's any other way that this can happen. And the Bible says he went to his disciples who were also afraid and tired. It's in the middle of the night. And he said, will you please come and pray with me? Just one hour. Just one hour. Will you come and pray with me? And the disciples couldn't. They fell asleep. It's interesting to me. Here's Jesus in the garden, the greatest act of redemption that the world had ever seen. He's, he's about to unfold. And Jesus is engaging in battle by praying. And none of his disciples were willing or able because the Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak, right? But just a few minutes later, fast forward the tape, Peter He's willing to stand up and draw his sword and cut off a servant's ear, right? I mean, that's us, aren't we? We're like, man, give me the armor, give me the sword, I'm ready. And Jesus is on your knees, though. And we're like, ah, oh, I'm tired, Lord. I'm, I'm tired, that's hard. That doesn't sound very exciting to me. That sounds a little bit drab and dab and boring. But I'm ready to, do, I'm ready to cut a dude's head off for you, Lord. And he says, no, I need you on your knees. That's where the real power is. All of the Bible shows us this. All of the Bible. And... John Piper, one of the most convicting things I ever read was by Piper, and he said this. He, he talked about prayer being part of our warfare, and, and he likened it to a walkie-talkie for a soldier, right? He said this, God has given us prayer not as an intercom for increased convenience, but as a walkie-talkie connecting the general's headquarters with the frontline artillery. Prayer is not a bell to call the servants to satisfy some desire we happen to feel. It is a battlefield transmitter for staying in touch with the general. I know that that can land heavy on us sometimes, but it's so true. If you read the Bible, most of the prayers that you're going to read in the Bible are prayers not to necessarily change circumstances, right? Not to lighten the load, so to speak, but it's to strengthen the back. All the different times you see, especially in the book of Acts, the apostles, they're in prison, they're in jail, 
their, their, their lives are in jeopardy. And if you look at what they're praying, it's not always a prayer to be delivered. Not always. Most of the time, it's a prayer for boldness, for courage, for fearlessness, for eloquence and, and, and strength to preach the message. Because to them, the mission that they were on could only be accomplished through prayer. Taking the finished work of Jesus, that message, to the ends of the earth. They knew that prayer was so vital um, John Miller wrote a book called Turning the, the, wait a minute, it's The Inside Church Being Turned Outward, Some, something like that. I'm f- sorry, my, my memory's uh, escaping me here. But he, in that book, he talked about distinguishing maintenance prayer from frontline prayer. And the book was, by the way, Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. That's the name of it. He talked about the difference between maintenance prayer and frontline's prayer. And listen, I want to I want to let you know right now, it is never wrong to pray for God to heal somebody who is sick because God cares about every burden and anxiety and stress we have in our lives. If you have a sick kid, it's never you should pray. You should beseech the throne of God and ask for healing and ask for strength and ask for health and to ask for comfort and it's never wrong to ask for finances when you are in dire straits. Um those would be called most of the time, I think, maintenance prayers. Unless they fall under spiritual warfare, Satan oftentimes is connected with sickness and affliction like in the book of Job. But this is what John Miller said. Maintenance prayer is usually short, mechanical, and focused on physical needs inside the church. In contrast, the three basic traits of frontline prayer are these. So check this out. Remember, prayer is war. He said frontline prayers are characterized by one a request for grace to confess sins and to humble ourselves. Two, a compassion and zeal for the flourishing of the church and the reaching of the lost. And three, a yearning to know God, to see His face and to glimpse His glory. In other words, John Miller is saying, if the only thing we are ever praying for are other Christians who are sick um, or who are sad or who need some type of physical help, and those things are not wrong to pray for at all. We should pray for them. But John Miller is saying, if that's the only things you ever pray, you're not engaging in frontline prayer. Because there are people who aren't Christians, who don't know Christ, who have no hope in the world, and they have nobody praying for them, nobody reaching them. And frontline prayer, um, like the book of Acts that you read about, this kingdom mindset, is asking God for strength, for energy, for power, and courage. Does that make sense? That's what frontline prayer is, because prayer is war. All of prayer is war. There's, a, there's a, another account in the Old Testament, I think, that really reminds us of this. And um, Yeah, there's the intercom versus the soldier. There's another account in the Old Testament, and it comes in Nehemiah 4. And those of you who kind of know the story of the Old Testament, because of Israel's sins, God had allowed the enemies to come and invade Israel. And one of the first things they did is they burned the temple to the ground, they destroyed the city, and they tore down the wall, um, which was terrible. All the things that Israel took pride in and trusted in. And on top of that, all the different tribes were scattered. They were sent away and they were all in captivity. And there was a man named Nehemiah, and he found himself in the unique and strategic position of being the cupbearer for Artaxerxes, this pagan monarch. In fact, He's the most powerful king on the face of the planet at the time that this took place in the Old Testament. Xerxes, he was worshipped as a god. He was thought to be God's son. And Nehemiah was his cupbearer, a Jew, in service of the most powerful king on, on, the, on the face of the planet. You know what a cupbearer does? He would have had a cool job until things went south. He would sample the wine that the king was going to drink to test and see if it was poison, right? 
which would be a cool job. I mean, you would get the most expensive and, and uh, uh, amazing wine in the world until it had poison on it, and then you were done, <laughs> until it had poison in it, and then you were clocked out, right? But he would test all the king's food, so he had a very trusting relationship with the king. Um, so we'll get back to that in a little bit. But Nehemiah, um, through the sovereign act of God, he was enabled to lead God's people out of Babylonian captivity um, into the back to Israel and to rebuild the wall. He was in charge of building the wall all around Jerusalem. But there were enemies that were there that were opposing them. Okay, They did not want this wall to go up. So I want to read what happened. Check this out. When Sanballat, these are the enemies, and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. I remember this is a picture of warfare. They were very angry, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And this is Nehemiah writing this, and he says this, And we prayed to our God, and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. It's interesting, isn't it? What is Nehemiah's strategy? What's the first thing that he does when he hears that enemies are angry, they don't like this work that's taking place, they don't want Israel to be rebuilt, they don't want protective walls around it, so they're going to come and they're going to invade. The first thing he does is he prays and he sets up a watch. It's interesting. That's instructive, I think, for us. And then he goes on. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the coats of mail. Isn't that an interesting picture? They're working, rebuilding this wall. There's masonry work going on here, but they're also soldiering. They have weapons. He says, and the leader stood behind, and the, leader stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. <laughs> like a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. That's what was going on here. Check this out. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, waiting for the call, right? And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. That is another beautiful picture of what prayer is. We are engaged in mission, right? We're doing the work of the ministry. We're evangelizing. Uh, we're taking the word. We're, we're shepherding our children. Uh, we're one-anothering each other in the church. But there's also this dynamic of warfare. We got, we've got our weapons on, right? We're always, the Bible says, we are to always be in a spirit of prayer. That's what this text says. In Ephesians, look at it again. Ephesians chapter 6. He says this. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Uh, we are to be praying at all times. And that doesn't mean you never sleep, you never eat, you never have a conversation with anybody. It just means our attitude is one of prayerful dependence. You are rebelling against Satan every time you pray. I could put it that way. 
Every time you pray and beseech the God of heaven, you are, it's an act of rebellion against our enemy. Um, because all of prayer is war. So that's the first point, and that's the longest one. Don't, don't read into the length of that point, okay? Two more really, really, really short points. The second one, prayer is not only war, prayer is weighty. Things happen when we pray. We can be clothed in armor. We can memorize every major doctrine in the Bible. We can have systematic theology just coming out of our ears and out of our mouth. But um, the weighty things happen. The power comes when we get on our knees, when we beseech God, when we engage in this kind of warlike prayer. Uh, it's interesting. Every time, you know, hurricane season's coming up again here. We almost had one last week, right? Dodged another bullet. And just about every time, what happens to every house in, in, <laughs> near the ocean? We lose power, right? Power goes out. And in Florida, when power goes out, man, everything stops. You got nothing. You don't have, you can't charge your phone. You can't watch TV. You don't have air conditioning. Everything stops. Nothing works. Nothing connects. But we've managed somehow with this amazing technology that God has given us to build these things called generators, right? Some are big and expensive and loud. Some are, are little bitty, like the one I have that was a gift from a precious friend. And, uh, you know, when our power goes out, when a hurricane comes, we lose all power. But I got this little bitty generator that I can put some gasoline in and I can crank it up and I can charge my phone. One of them. I can charge one of my phones for a little bit. It's pretty cool, right? Well, well, listen, I would compare what our prayer lives, if we're all honest here before God this morning, what our prayer lives are usually like as Christians, it's probably like my little generator, you know? We try and manufacture and muster up maybe a prayer before a meal or when social norms is, is in the Christian flow and, and the rhythms of life uh, kind of demand, yeah, you, you probably should pray before you preach and you probably should pray before you eat and should pray, you know, at this time or that time. Uh, we start our little generator up and we charge our phone and that's it. We got no air conditioner and we normally put them in the wrong places and people inhale the fumes and die, right? <laughs> that's typically what happens. Uh, but God says, no, there's real, there's real prayer. Uh, there's real power when you really engage in the kind of prayer he's talking about. Check this out. James Boyce said this, our secret resource is prayer. And what makes it so important is that the weakest Christian can at any period of his life at any moment of the day and in any circumstance, cry out to God for help and instantly have the resources of the infinite sovereign God at his disposal. Instantly. It's amazing, isn't it? I was reading Psalm 18 with my wife yesterday. And, you know, that's the psalm. I think there was a worship song put to it. Um, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Remember that song? It comes from Psalm 18. David is in dire straits. Saul's hunting him for his life. And, and David's recounting this years later, looking back on what happened. He said, I called out in my distress. I, I called out and I cried out in anguish to the God of heaven. And then he says this, and God from his holy temple in heaven heard me and smoke came out of his nostrils and the earth quaked and he came on the wings of a cherub riding of dark clouds and he came in judgment and he was angry because of my enemies. Man, I love that picture. I love that picture because you know what it's saying? Fathers in this room who have little children, um, how would it make you feel if they're bullied? I mean, how would that resonate with you to see somebody pick on your kid, right? And what if it was not another kid? What if it was another adult bullying your kid? How would you feel if you heard your little kid say, Daddy, Mommy, help, help. They're hurting me or they're whatever, teasing me. 
How would you feel? Because the picture in the picture in that prayer in Psalm 18 and the picture God wants us to have is man, we have God at our He is at our disposal. He's just ready. He's ready and waiting on us to call down His power. That's what prayer is. That's what prayer is. And He comes and the earthquakes and everything changes. Because God's on, on our side. Or rather, I should say we're on His side, right? Linsky, one of my favorite commentators, says this. He says, Prayer brings to our aid the mighty help of God Himself. Prayer is listed here because it brings our divine ally to our side in the battle on the wicked day. And that's what Paul's really saying. He started out in this passage in verse 10 um, saying, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And he talks about all his armor. And then all he's doing is coming full circle back to, and remember, remember, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Call on His power. Call on God to help you. Petition Him at all times and all circumstances with all kinds of prayer. And that's why it also says this. It says, in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. Now, Baptists get really scared when that phrase comes up, right? They do. They think, oh, goodness, is he going to talk about tongues here? Or what, what's this all about? Um, he doesn't mention that here, but I'll tell you what Paul does mean in this passage. It can mean a lot of other things, too. I think what he's really getting at is the Spirit of God helps us. Didn't Jesus call the Holy Spirit our helper, our advocate? Um, and if we're praying in the Spirit, what that means is we are asking the Spirit of God to help us. The Spirit creates and cultivates prayer in us. He guides our prayer. He energizes our prayer. He empowers our prayer. It says that also in the book of Jude. Beloved, build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit of God. It's the same thing. Spiritual prayer is the Spirit of God helping us in our weaknesses. There's even a passage in uh, Romans chapter 8 that says this. Check this out. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is, what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Isn't that an amazing promise? Have you ever, don't raise your hand, have you ever f felt so overwhelmed, so defeated, so sad, so downcast, so swallowed up with anxiety and stress and fear and sadness that you just feel like you just, in prayer, it's just, uh, you don't even know what to pray. You don't know how to pray. The words don't come. And the Bible has a promise for you, my friend. It says the Spirit helps you in your weaknesses with praying. That's praying in the Spirit. And sometimes the Spirit, you know, you're groaning. The Spirit is groaning through you. He gives you this divine aid, this help. And sometimes, sometimes I think praying in the Spirit is God gives you such clarity in your thinking, such freedom. You feel like you are like touching the throne of heaven uh, because the Spirit is there, very present, to just give you liberty and asking God for help and giving you boldness to storm the gates of heaven. That's what I believe praying in the Spirit is. And that's why Spurgeon said this about that text. He said, groanings which cannot be uttered are often prayers which cannot be refused. Some of the greatest prayers, man, are when you feel like the Spirit is helping you and you don't really know what to pray, but you don't, you need God's help. And just as a parent, if a wounded child <laughs> needed your help, are you going to say, no, say the right words, say it the right way? No, if you're kicking, you say, help, you're going to help them. And our spirit cries out, Abba, Father, help us. Daddy, come, help. And it's the same way. 
And here's the last thing. Prayer is work. Not only is prayer war and is prayer um, weighty, powerful, prayer is also work. And this is where I really want to, uh, I want to leave you with this. Look at this passage. This is the Apostle Paul, okay? Uh, an eloquent speaker, a very gifted communicator, spirit-filled, wrote 13 epistles in the New Testament, church planner extraordinaire, gospel preacher to the Gentiles. This is the guy that got stoned and left for dead, drug out of the city. He went right back in. This is the guy that fearlessly stood before kings and emperors. Uh, he, he was fearless, And yet, look at the things that he is asking for in this prayer. Check this out. He's saying, And pray also for me that words may be given me in opening my mouth. This is Paul praying for words. Hey, would you pray for your pastor? He planted the church at Ephesus and he's saying, Will you pray for me that God gives me words? And you're like, Pray for Paul? Paul doesn't need help. Paul's got this thing, man. He's killing it. It's like one of the dandruff commercials I used to watch when I was a kid. You remember those cheesy dandruff commercials from the 80s and 90s? They're like, you try Selsun Blue or whatever the other competitor was. And the person's like, dude, you don't have dandruff. And they're like, exactly. Because I use Selsun Blue, right? You're like, Paul, you don't, you, don't need elo- you don't need eloquence. You got all these words. And Paul's like, exactly, because I've written some other epistles and I'm calling in reinforcements. Because people are always praying. Paul's always asking for prayer like I am. And I'm not doing it selfishly. Pray for me as your pastor. And as the lead pastor of this church, that God would give me courage. That's another thing he prays for. He prays for courage. And you're like, Paul, you're the most fearless apostle on the face of the planet. Death doesn't scare you. And Paul says, I know, but I'm about to stand before the emperor of Rome, Nero. And Paul's a human being. And Paul has fears and emotions just like we do. You know, Nero lit up his garden behind the palace. You know what he used for tiki torches? Christians. He would light them on fire. He would pour pitch and petroleum on Christians, tie them up with chains, and light them on fire to light up his garden for all his entertainment with his pagan guests. And Paul knew that. And he knew that God had commissioned him to go stand before the Roman emperor and proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And Paul says, pray that God would give me words to say. He would give me a fearlessness, this attitude of fearlessness, and that I would be able to declare the mystery of the gospel the way I ought to. And I love that because... Prayer is work, right? It's hard work. And Paul knows that. He needs help. And this is the other application from from this last point. Um, I want to help you. And I know I'm over my time here. But I really am closing with this. I want to help you as a church. I'm giving, giving you some homework. All the things that Paul says here, he uses the word all four different times. Pos in Greek. He says, uh, look at the passage. He says, and starting in verse 18... Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Maybe another message I'll preach on those in the future. But what he's saying is this is, this is hard work and there's lots of different prayers. There's lots of different ways to pray. But I just don't want to stand up here this morning and just challenge you to pray. I want to help you. So there's this really simple but very clear acrostic that a lot of Christians have used. I've used it. Um, that can help you pray. And I want to ask you to do something for me. Don't laugh at this assignment, okay? You've got to start somewhere. Everyone has to start somewhere. I want you to do this. If you don't have some kind of system in, in, in place that works already, if you do, fine, go with it. But if you're looking to challenge yourself to pray more regularly the kinds of prayer that Paul is talking about here, I want you to use this acrostic to set aside five minutes. Every day this week. Try it today. 
turn off your phone, put it on airplane mode, put the kid down for a nap. Husbands, you can pray with your wives. Parents, you can pray with your children. But I want you to set aside five minutes and remember this acrostic, A-C-T-S, Acts. This will help you pray. Number one is adoration. You're coming to God recognizing who He is, what He's done for you. You're praising Him for His majesty, His sovereignty, His beauty, His power. Secondly is C, confession. And honestly, this acrostic is written uh, in terms of importance. You should always start, I think, with adoration. You can see the, the prayer that Jesus gave us as a model prayer. He does. Hallowed be thy name. And secondly is confession. Confess your sins, your weakness to God. Repent. Ask for help. Third, thanksgiving. Be, be thankful for all the good gifts that God has given you in the past. Past deliverances. Health. The fact that you're even able to pray to Him because of Christ. And then lastly is supplication. And that's where Paul really lands here. It's all supplication, all petition. See, I think the enemy wants us to think this, that prayer is just a spiritual gift that a few select Christians have. And you know, you read about them in in historical uh, biographies that they wore out the floorboards in their room, on their knees all the time praying, or there were tear stains on their bed from their prayers. And we think, yeah, a few people have that gift. I'm just not one of them. Don't you believe that for a minute. Nowhere in any of the spiritual gift list in the Bible do you find prayer. Because it's not, it's a gift, but it's a gift for everyone. It's not some elite spiritual gift that a few people have. It's a divine privilege and responsibility that God gave to all of us. Satan would love it if you would believe that only a few people are supposed to engage in this kind of prayer and that you're not one of them. Don't buy that for a minute, friend. All of us have been entrusted with this incredible responsibility and privilege to pray. So Acts, set aside five minutes every day, engage in this, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, and know that every time you bow your head and pray to God, He delights to hear your prayer. And here's why. Because Jesus purchased that right for us. Did you know that? There's only one person who ever... If anybody ever heard the right to be heard and have their prayer answered, and yet the heavens were closed, and they got nothing but silence, and they were forsaken, it was Jesus Christ on the cross, crying out to God for deliverance, for help. And he was met with absence, with darkness. He was deserted. He was abandoned. And you say, why in the world? So that you and I can petition God. The Bible says that we have access to God through faith based on the merits of Christ. His perfect life, his substitutionary atonement. We have access to God. We can call out to Him in prayer. And listen, guys, you know what that means? It means you can be raw and brutally honest with God. You don't have to pray nice little polite prayers like maybe you've heard all your life. You can pray the way the psalmist prays and say, God, I'm angry at you. Where are you? I'm disappointed. You're killing me, God. What is going on here? I'm so sad, Lord. I'm so angry. I'm so frustrated. God already knows those things. And you're engaging in the kind of war-type prayer that Paul's talking about here when you're honest with God. So we have the privilege of prayer and the responsibility of prayer because of the finished work of Christ.